Welcome to Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece, a read-along podcast hosted by me, Alessia Cesana Harris. This is episode 42, Purgatorio, Canto Ottavo, the third day, late afternoon. Yesterday, we left the action at a stall with a scene that is almost serene, presenting us former enemies reconciled to create a stark contrast with the inferno. The souls that were damned were souls which held on to the anger and hatred that characterized their life, while those that were saved have repented of it and understood, albeit late in life, what Jesus had said of being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect which happens to be the Gospel reading and Mass for the day I'm recording this, which is the 16th of June. We will find our travellers and Sordello where we left them, and sunset is now with them. The Salve Regina is sung at the end of Complaint, which would set our time at 7pm in the previous canto, but since that is the time of sunset, and it is now the time of sunset, it's kind of like a bit confused. Yeah, um, because it seems that the canonical hours and the action don't coincide, or at least there is a mistake in the chronology that I'm using for the titles. But anyway, I checked, and the Salvation is definitely sung at the end of Compling since its introduction across most orders around the mid-13th century. So it's not a case that I'm thinking it's later on the grounds of modern usage, but either way, it's now reliably around 7pm, and we'll be entering the valley to spend the night. Dante tells us it's the most melancholic hour of the day. In such poetic words, I claim him as a proto-romantic, if no one else has done so yet. Still, the melancholy of his thoughts is soon replaced by the sweetness of the music. Her souls sing the hymn Te Lucis Ante Terminum, which is probably more familiar to you all as to thee before the close of day. Unless I have underestimated my appeal among traditionalists, since whenever I dare to say anything that disputes the acceptance online, quote-unquote, orthodoxy, I get accused of being a rabid liberal, so I don't really expect many fans outside of the so-called normie bracket. The same sometimes attributed to St. Ambrose of Milan has been set to music, among others, by Thomas Tallis, one of a few pieces in sacred music from a time when male voices could later be replaced by female contrante uh, were still in vogue. Anyway, I expect Dante heard them singing in plain song, and since we're talking about big, powerful kings, they all sounded like Pavarotti. And then, in verses 19 to 21, we have the first address directed to us readers in seven that will be found in the purgatory. Here, reader fits your eyes well on the truth, for now indeed so thin is the veil, surely to penetrate within is easy. This is an interesting verse, which presents Dante as the poet as being able to report facts as both historical and allegorical at once, in a way that other forms of writing don't allow. So we see two angels come down from the bosom of the Blessed Virgin Mary to defend the valley from the serpent that was about to strike. This scene is a parallel to the scene in Genesis 3.24, except that the swords now have no point, because they do not need to harm. Victory had been won at Calvary. The flames can be seen as God's love for us, and the green in their appearance as signifying the hope for salvation brought by Christ. So you can see here the allegory mixed with the historical fact. The angels guarded this group of, as it happens, former military men, like sentinels outside of an army camp. But there was more to the scene than this fact 
for those who have eyes to see. The three will then descend into the valley where they find a soul that stares at Dante like he knows him. And it turns out he does. It is Nino Visconti, so the two greet each other with affection. We've seen Nino mentioned a fair few times before, but we know that friendship was not reason enough for Dante to save someone. So it's worth remembering what Gomita said of his master whom he had betrayed. He was commended for being a just man. It would appear perhaps that his relegation to the antepurgatory is due to a neglect of his spiritual welfare, despite his obvious virtues, which implies the scholastic view of separation between the natural virtues and the virtues infused by grace that bring about the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Nino was clearly a good man, but he could have been a saint. Excitedly, he calls upon Corrado Malaspina to come and see the gift that God has sent them, a visitor that would go back to earth, and so we have the expected demands for asking family for prayers. It happens that Nido's widow had remarried into the Visconti of Milan and forgotten about her previous husband, and he makes a comment about the feelings of women being fleeting when the senses aren't there to sustain them, which, in my humble opinion, was something that the younger Dante needed to hear and how she would be not honored in death by the her new family the way that she should have been uh, she would sorry she would have been if she remarried uh, she remained loyal to his memory sorry i'm getting so confused anyway his wife will die in 1334 and the tomb will have both the coats of arms of the two husbands perhaps because of the influence of the poem who knows she was buried in the church of St. Francis Major in Milan, although I'm not sure what happened to her tomb after the church's demolition in 1806. Most of the artwork from the church were taken by the Napoleonic army and are now found in various places including the Louvre and the National Gallery in London. If it wasn't clear, it was the church for which Leonardo da Vinci painted the Virgin of the Rocks, among other pieces. I have a funny story about this painting. When I was little, we went to the Louvre for the first time, and as you'd expect from me, I was excited, fooled by sugar, and not very good at being obedient. So I went ahead of my parents and found myself in the room that held the works of Leonardo at the time. The change how they hold them now, the way you see the Mona Lisa now has like a queuing system like Disneyland, within a bigger room. But at the time, which I think was 98 at the latest, it was what felt like a smaller space, than the one we walked in this past November, even as I was kind of like smaller, so it should have kind of like felt bigger. Uh, anyway, there was a group of Japanese tourists, and an elderly gentleman let me get ahead of him in the group that was gathered around this tiny picture, and I was so unimpressed. I couldn't figure out why everyone was making a fuss about that small square with the ugly woman when the other wall had this huge altarpiece of beautiful Mary and baby Jesus. And yeah, I need to ask my parents if they remember it because I have very few memories of my childhood, but this one will stay with me forever because it just goes against all our orthodoxy. To this day, even understanding more about the Mona Lisa as a painting, I still prefer the version of the rocks, and so now I'm fonder of the version kept in London, which I go and see from time to time, like it's an old friend or something. Anyway, back to the poem. Before we spec uh, get to speak to Corrado, we see the action with the angels, and how the serpent comes sliding in, and the angels start flying lower, but that's enough for the serpent to go away. It's all a bit anticlimactic, but also theologically accurate, because if the victory had already been won, then they just needed to give him a stern reminder of that fact for the snake to know its place in the grand scheme of things. The canto ends with the exchange between Dante and Corrado Malaspina, the younger, who says he has to be in the antepurgatory for loving his family too much. 
I would assume that, even though our Lord warned us about loving our fathers and mothers more than him, this is not what he meant, and that he refers to the honour of his family and the quest for power driven by it. Aghast, based on the fact that he humbly points out he is not his grandfather, and also that he asks after the state of his lands, to which Dante replies with words praising the fame and honour of the family. The final comment by Corrado is an interesting one. He stops Dante, almost embarrassed by such praise, pointing out there will be more reason to praise them, or better ones, should I say, in 1306. I'm not sure what this refers to because no one seems to be bothered by the same details that interest me, but it's possible that it refers to the time when Dante will indeed visit those lands after all, and be on the receiving end of the liberality and hospitality of the family that he was so eager to praise on hearsay, except that, of course, Dante was writing after 1306 happened. Whatever way, we're left with no response by him yet, and we'll be back tomorrow to see what happens next. Bye! Thank you for listening to today's episode of Alessia's Divine Comedy, A Journey Through Dante's Masterpiece. Thank you also to Alexander Nakarada for the music, which is fun for 10 or adds if it was not meant as a Roman numeral and is available in the public domain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at alessia underscore chic or on my blog www.chicandcatholic.com.